Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Amen and good morning. Welcome back to Philippians. Why don't we begin by calling out to our great God who has loved us so much in Christ. Would you bow with me? God, our Father in heaven, we, we want to hallow your name for you are great and greatly to be praised. There's, there's no one greater, no one higher. God, you came down in your Son and made a way in spite of our sin that we could have bold access to your throne. And so, God, we, we, we ask with confidence this morning that you would open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word. And, Spirit of God, that you would, you would move us, uh, mobilize us, inspire us to, be, to become more like Christ, to, to become conformed to Christ in his death. Lord, that we would spend our lives for the glory of the Father and the good of others, and that the nations would know we have a king who is worthy of all that we are. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to encourage you from God's word to follow the pattern, follow the pattern from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, and as you're turning there, I want you to be reminded that Paul's primary purpose in writing this book is to promote their progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 25. Specifically, he wants to hear that the church at Philippi is standing firm in the Holy Spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in the face of rising opposition. And then Paul proceeds to show us in chapter 2 that in order to be gospel-centered in the face of opposition and to be united in advancing this gospel we need to focus on the gospel. The gospel is the root of both uh, steadfastness in the face of opposition and of unity in the body. So after he tells us this in chapter 2, he moves in chapter 3 to telling us, look, because it's all about the gospel, there's no room for confidence in our flesh. That's what trips us up, right? History, tradition, making much of ourselves. And he says, look, I I threw all that away for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, of of having a life that's about Christ and his resurrection power in the face of adversity, in the face of trials and temptations. And so he tells us that he's still running, even though Christ has brought him into the race, even though He stands before God fully justified because of what Christ has done. He still has a race to run and a race to win. And and who is the goal? Jesus. Who is the prize? Jesus. And so Paul has told us he's going to keep striving toward Christ and straining toward Christ, forgetting yesterday and running for him today, seeking to become more and more like Jesus in his death. And now that he's given us the pattern 
of the pursuit of Christ, he tells us in verse 17, down through the end of the chapter, all right, it's time to walk. I've, I've told you what I do. I've told you why I do it. Let's do it. All right? So let's see what Paul says, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I want to show you three things from this text about following after Christ. And the first is, we've got to imitate the pattern of a humble and vigorous pursuit of Christ Jesus together. In verse 17, Paul again uses that attention-grabbing word, brothers. It's, in the Greek, it's called the vocative case. It's, like a, it's the wake-up case. Once more, he's saying, hang with me. Don't lose me. I know, I've, I know I've been talking at you. I know I've been preaching for a while. I know you've, you've gotten sleepy in the reading of this letter. Right? Wake up, brothers. Instead of giving up in the face of adversity, instead of trusting in yourself or your status, and most certainly instead of giving up and throwing everything away for the world and its momentary pleasures, Paul says literally, become together imitators of me. Become together imitators of me. He, he sort of invents a word in the Greek, together imitators. He says something similar to the Corinthians, right? Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitation is not just about hearing information. It's not just about teaching. It certainly includes that, but it's also about modeling, right? Model and pattern your life after me. As Fee writes, those who imitate live out the model presented by the teacher. They don't just listen to his teachings. Uh, In Paul, the call to imitate and to do so in the midst of suffering often go hand in hand. In in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, Paul says, And you become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We need to imitate and pattern our lives because life isn't easy. We need patterns to follow. And Paul is calling the Philippians to live by the example that he has just given them in in verses 4 through 14 of chapter 3. Placing no confidence in the flesh, but pursuing Christ wholeheartedly, no matter what it would cost them. And sometimes it will cost you quite a bit to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. The ultimate example of following after God for the glory of God is Jesus, right? He is the ultimate example of faithfulness to God under pressure. But Christ also gives us Paul and others like Paul. Remember Timothy and Barnabas from chapter 2 of this letter. He gives us other examples. Why does he do that? Why does he give us examples other than Jesus if Jesus is the ultimate example? I've thought about that this week. Maybe you've never asked yourself that question, but I asked myself that question. All right, well, if Jesus is the ultimate example, then 
then why do I have Paul? Why do I have Timothy and Epaphroditus? And I think part of the reason is this. We need examples in the here and now, lest we excuse our own laziness in pursuing Christ right now and ignore our responsibility to live our lives for His glory and for the good of others by saying something like this. Maybe you've even thought it. Well, I'm not Jesus after all. Anybody ever been there? And you're not, right? You're, you're not Jesus after all. And yet we see someone like Paul in the middle of prison, who's in prison for the gospel, who's still spending his life for the glory of God. We see someone like Epaphroditus in chapter 2, who nearly died in getting the message to Paul because he knew that the Philippians were worried about him. We, we see people going the extra mile, as Jesus called us to do, for the glory of Christ and the good of others. So we're not Jesus, and yet we know Jesus has made us his to make us like him. True? We've been adopted and cleansed and redeemed to become like the one who adopted us and cleansed us and redeemed us. And he gives us examples like Paul to pursue together. This word together imitators means we are called to emulate Paul's way of life in our relationships with and encouragement to one another. The word reminds us that our relationship with Jesus is personal, but not private or isolated. God gives us in Christ, saves us in Christ, to become united with a church to pursue this pattern of life together. We, we can't pursue Christ as little islands. He, he saves us into a family so that we would pursue Christ together. But it isn't just Jesus and Paul that we imitate. Or it isn't even just Jesus and Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Notice what Paul says next in verse 17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is telling them not just to look to him, but to keep their eyes on, which means to constantly and carefully observe, to keep on scoping out, not just Paul, but those who are already there in Philippi who are living in this way. The word example means pattern. When I, when I was a kid, I've been trying to remember the name of the store. I should have asked mom, but I just got busy this week. But mom would go to this like cloth store. I don't even know if these th places still exist. And there would be like patterns that what is it peace goods is that what it was mom was it peace goods store yes it was the peace goods store okay <laughs> and some of you are like what on the earth is he talking about I'm not even sure but it's just like this weird random memory in there from when I was a kid we'd go to the peace goods store and we'd look at fabric and the next thing I know mom's flipping through patterns she's bringing them home and then she's whipping out a new dress I'm like all right well how did she do that she followed the pattern. She had to follow the pattern. And Paul's saying, there's a pattern. You can see it in my life, but it's not just in my life. There's people in Philippi. You can see this pattern in their life. They're facing opposition. They're being attacked. They're being talked about. And you know what? They just keep following Christ. You follow people like that. Don't follow the people who dip out and check out as soon as the, the temperature rises. Go find another place. You, you hang with the people who show the pattern of faithfulness over time in the face of fire. 
Find the people for whom it's costing them something to follow Jesus. Find the people for, for whom the, the anxiety in their life for living for the glory of Christ, you can see that it's costing them something. You know it's costing them something. Hang out with those people and ask them about it. Model your life after them. That's what Paul is saying. Find those kinds of people, not the people that chatter and talk and dip out. Find those people. Get to know them. Take them to lunch. That's what Paul is saying here. You know what the pattern looks like. You've seen it in me. You see it in others. Hang out with those people. My mom was able to make clothing that was wearable. Wasn't designer fashion. We, the Palmer kids did not go to school with uh, polos on. Peace goods was more like it. But you know what? The clothes worked. She provided wearable clothing because she followed the pattern. And you want to know what? If you want to wear the robes of Christ's righteousness on the day of eternity, you got to follow the pattern today. Paul, serving Jesus from prison in Rome, along with others at Philippi, are providing a common pattern for pursuing Jesus. Notice there's not a bunch of different patterns to pursue Christ. There is a pattern. There is one pattern that undergirds every real pursuit of Jesus, no matter your age or your income or your occupation. Nobody gets to dip out of the pattern. Now, All Christians from all different walks of life, it might apply itself, it might look different, doesn't mean you all have to be a pastor in order to follow the pattern, but every Christian's got to follow this one pattern. We've got to reject confidence in our flesh and live in the power of Christ's resurrection through trials and adversities and disappointments as we run to receive the prize and become more like Jesus on the way. Every believer must ask, how can I be poured out for the glory of God and the good of his church? Are you living for the good of Christ's church? That's the pattern. And it's a pattern others in Philippi are already emulating in Paul, and now the people at Philippi should emulate as well. Now, there may be some who would come along and propose an alternate example, right? There would be some who would say, I'm following Christ, but their life is not conforming to the pattern. And I suspect that's what's happening as we turn the corner to verses 18 and 19. There's probably some itinerant ministers coming through town who claim to know Jesus, and yet their whole life is about health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus has just become a gimmick for themselves rather than a Savior and a God to obey, submit to, and to follow. So in verses 18 and 19, Paul shifts gears very quickly, does he not? Do you notice that? Verse 18, what does he say? For many, so, so why do you got to keep your eye on the pattern? Because there are people proposing alternate patterns. For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, as enemies. Of the cross of Christ. Enemies. Of the very means. Of our salvation. So why do we have to conform our lives to the pattern? Because we've got to understand. That the only alternative. 
to following godly examples is following an example that ends in destruction. There's no other option from verse 17. You're either living in verse 17 or you're living in verses 18 and 19. Does that make sense? It's either on or it's off. I'm either patterning my life after my Savior and those who are patterning their lives after Him or I am patterning my life after a path that ends in destruction. Paul begins verse 18 with the word for. He's giving us the reason for his call to imitate the pattern of pursuing Christ. Here's the reason many tragically don't walk according to this pattern. Paul might be speaking of unbelievers generally or more likely of some who claim to know Christ and yet don't really want to be conformed to him in his death. They want to abuse Jesus for their own goods. Either way, whether they're just unbelievers or unbelievers who are abusing and misusing Christ or, or some, as Adrian Rogers put it, maybe they had a faith at the beginning, but it was a faith that fizzled. And if you have a faith that fizzled, it was a faith that was faulty from the first. They may have looked like believers, but they were never actually believers. They're not living what theologians call the cruciform life. They're not living the life that is aimed at becoming like Christ in his death, dying for the one who died for me, that he might be exalted in the church. That's not how they're living. So Paul is moved to tears. Literally, he's weeping. The word there is weeping upon weeping upon weeping. I've told you about them so many times, and I'm weeping over them. Did you know it's okay to weep over lostness? There's people in this room. You got friends and, and neighbors and coworkers and colleagues that, that you're begging God to save. I want to encourage you this morning. Brokenness comes before deliverance. Keep praying, keep weeping, keep storming the doors of heaven for them. Paul is honest with us about their condition, and yet he weeps over it. He's not like, yay, they're dying and going to hell. He's like, they're dying and going to hell. Let's, let's be moved to tears for lostness, North Roanoke. They live in a hostile opposition to Christ and His cross. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are opposed to the means of our salvation and the model of our Christian walk. That is what this means. They are opposed to the cross. You know, in one sense, the cross is something that only God could bear, that only Jesus could bear in our place. Only Jesus, the sinless Son of God, could be offered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Aren't you thankful that Jesus bore the cross? Aren't you thankful that the only one who could bear the cross for us has come and borne the cross for us? And they are enemies of this message. They are enemies of the fact that they could not save themselves. That they were so bad off that they needed a savior. But they're enemies of the cross in another way as well. They're not only opposed to the means of our salvation, they're also opposed to the model of our salvation. The cross is not just how we get in, the cross is how we go on in our Christian faith. We keep looking to Christ and denying self for the glory of God and the good of others, and they are opposed to that model. Paul tells us in Galatians 6.14, 
Because of the cross, the world is crucified to us and us to the world. We don't have to have the world's approval and the world's acclaim if we have Jesus. We want God's kingdom to come and His will to be done so we follow Him and His word and we get out of the way. As Feed writes, the the cross is simultaneously God's means of redemption. It's how He saves and it is His way of turning the tables on all merely human schemes. The, The cross stands as God's utter contradiction to human wisdom and power. Therefore, it inevitably makes enemies of those who refuse to go that route. Paul's concern is for the Philippians to to walk in a way that conforms to the death of Christ, even the death of a cross. For that reason, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, we live in the power of the resurrection for the glory of Christ and the good of His church, but those who oppose this cross-bearing life are not headed for a glorious future, are they? Do you see what Paul says next? They're enemies of the cross of Christ, therefore... Their end is destruction. They they seem to have it all. They seem to be living the high life, but they are actually moving, though moving up the corporate ladder, they are moving speedily toward destruction. You know, it might seem natural to save this note of destruction for the end of this list of characteristics that Paul is building about those who don't walk according to the pattern of Christ. But Paul, I think, front loads it right after enemies of the cross of Christ because if you're an enemy of the cross of Christ, you are on the path of destruction. If you're opposed to this model, if you think you can pursue Christ without denying self, you're self-deluded and you are on the road to destruction. There are no alternatives to the cross-shaped life. Those who count everything as lost to gain Christ will gain Him, but those who live for the glory of self while putting a little Jesus on the side dish of their life will end up in destruction, total loss, ruin forever. Destruction is the opposite of salvation. Salvation is everlasting life with the with Jesus, the Lord of life, and destruction is everlasting death, separated from the love of God forever. The stakes in following the pattern are eternally significant. Gain Christ or end up in unending loss. And now Paul tells us what these folks are motivated by who are opposed to the pattern that we see in Paul and in Christ and in Timothy and Epaphroditus and in elders and pastors who are called in 1 Peter chapter 5 to shepherd the flock as examples, same word, as the pattern to be replicated and followed. What are they motivated by? They're motivated by their bellies. Do you see that? Their God is their belly. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. They're moving towards destruction. And you want to know what wakes them up in the morning. You want to know what fuels their path during the day. You want to know what they're really thinking about at the core of their life. It's not about Christ and His church and His kingdom. They're thinking about their bellies. You say, whoa. I mean, I like a good steak. I do too. Praise God. This, this is not necessarily about gluttony. It certainly could include gluttony. But 
Paul's not making a point just about food, all right? He's making a point that they are driven by their fleshly appetites. It is their bodily desires that motivate them. If they can't satisfy their taste buds, satisfy their their gratuitous fleshly pleasures, if they can't experiment and push the line past God's design, then they are not satisfied. They're taking that little hit. They're pushing the line. They're crossing the line. They're crossing the line. They're crossing the line. And you know what? There's pleasure in that for a season, for your flesh. And then there's guilt and despair because your conscience knows that it is not according to God's design or His best, and He made a better way for you to be satisfied according to His design. But there's a world out there that just keeps looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And they not, may not be addicted to a drug, they may not be addicted to alcohol, but they got to get the next hit. And one day soon, when they die or our king returns, they're going to be hit with the fact that their lives end in destruction. They're not dying to self to be filled with the presence and purposes of God, but they're trying to fill themselves with the endless pursuit of pleasures which never really satisfy. Did you ever think in the United States of America that we would be where we are culturally with what we're celebrating? Did you think that 20 years ago? When the Supreme Court said, sure, marry whoever you want to marry, we were told that's going to be the end of the conversation. It won't go any further than this. Lie. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? It's not going to end. It's not going to stop. The flesh can't ever find the satisfaction that your soul wants. Only Jesus can provide that. And these people, they've, they've found a niche in the world that gives them pleasure, and it has become their God. It can happen with golf, it can happen with cars, it can happen with music and football and travel sports and entertainment and alcohol and sex, but it happens in less obvious ways as well, church. It's easy for me to preach against the culture, and there's an appropriate time to do that, but Paul more often talks about those who serve their own appetites, like in Romans 16, 17 and 18, where he warns about people in the church who sow discord. The Bible says they're not serving Christ, but their own appetites. You know, I like a juicy steak, but a lot of people just like a juicy take. And if I'm on the, on the outside looking in, or it wasn't their idea, or somebody else had a better idea, then rather than listen and follow Christ, man, let's make a mess. Our motivation must not be our bellies, but the glory of Christ whose body was broken for us and our salvation. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. They're moving towards destruction. Their God is their belly. And next, 
Paul tells us they glory in their shame. They abide by an inverted, upside-down morality. What is right is regarded as wrong, and what is wrong is regarded as right. To glory in something is, is to delight in it. They delight in behaviors and thoughts and attitudes and pursuits which should bring them shame. Hosea says this about the Israelites. God blessed them with prosperity and abundance and numerical growth. And this is what the prophet Hosea says. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. The more good I gave them, the more they sinned. And then God says this, I will change their glory into shame. Fee says this, Not only are they not destined for a glory at all, but what glory they have in the present lies precisely in what should be a matter of shame. We live in a world where things are clearly shameful, which are being celebrated. Paul shows us it's okay to weep over souls which are so deluded. And he reminds us the only remedy to glorying in lesser things is to glory in Christ and to live as he lived and going to the cross for the glory of the Father and the good of lost sinners. It is to put to death by the power of the Spirit anything in us that doesn't want to honor Christ because we glory in him, we delight in him, and we long to see him, and we long for those who glory in their shame to instead meet the Savior and glory in him. Is that what you want to see happen in the Roanoke Valley Church? You want to see people who are glorying in what they should be ashamed of truly become ashamed of what is shameful and then glory in Christ who gave his life as a remedy. Finally, Paul tells us those of the world set their mind on earthly things. You say, well, I think about earthly things. I mean, I got to put clothes on. I got to buy groceries. Some of you are thinking about your grocery list in the middle of this sermon. You're like, all right, I checked out there. What'd you, I lo- you lost me on God is your belly because I was hungry. And I got a Kroger click list I'm working on right now. Church, Paul, Paul is not saying you can't ever think about groceries. Or laundry, or making a living, or mowing your grass. Because I'm going to have to do that soon because it's spring in February. He doesn't say lost people think about earthly things. He says lost people have their minds set on earthly things. Their motivation is their own immediate personal satisfaction in the present as a default always. It's a a satisfaction that comes from feeding the flesh rather than walking in the spirit. Paul's already told us following Jesus means having regard for others. It requires us to become like Jesus in his death. He's told us in Philippians 3.15 that those who are mature and maturing in Christ will think in terms of the pursuit of Jesus as the prize. That's how we ought to think. And people who try to have Jesus without embracing Paul's pattern of pursuing him are just pretending. Their minds are on earthly things while the mind of one who, tra- who chases after Jesus does what? Colossians 3, 2 sets their minds on where? On things above. We set our mind on things above even when we're in Kroger getting our click list. It's still about Christ and his kingdom. It's about providing for my family in such a way that that Christ is magnified and glorified even in the small things. Church, we must not be so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly good. 
you catch that? You've heard it the opposite. But we are here to be heavenly good. We are here to impact eternity. God has left us here as a, as a witness and a, and a testimony. We've got to let God's word trump our fears, human wisdom, and experience. We're either going to walk according to the God-glorifying others, blessing, joy-inducing, Jesus-chasing pattern that we see in Paul, or we will walk according to the pattern of the world, which is on a path that ends in destruction. Those are the options. And then Paul, as he's done a few times before, reminds us of the glorious future which awaits those who boast in the cross, while also reminding us of our citizenship in heaven. He shows us in verses 20 and 21, we must remember our superior citizenship in the present, right now, and eagerly anticipate our vindication when Christ returns. You say, it's, it's hard to live this way, pastor. The whole world is glorying in their bellies. The whole world sets their mind on the immediate gratification. The whole world lives in a different way. It's hard, yes, but Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, reminds us we, we are citizens of heaven. Unlike those who are enemies of the cross of Christ and who are fixated on earthly things and headed for destruction, Paul reminds us of our superior citizenship. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our brother in Christ, Joel Juarez, who plays bass back here for us, became a, a U.S. citizen this past Tuesday. That's pretty awesome. But you know what's far more awesome than his U.S. citizenship? We were already citizens of the same country. Hebrews tells us we're waiting on a better country that comes from heaven of which we are all citizenship. Citizens, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in His sight. All who come to the one Savior have been delivered to the one kingdom. And I'm so thankful that you have all the rights and privileges there too of U.S. citizenship. But man, you already had a citizenship that was so much infinitely greater. You could go into the throne room of glory because of the blood of Christ, just like I can. We are citizens of heaven. And my allegiance is to my king before it's uh, to anything else. And that means we are here, North Roanoke Baptist Church, to be a colony of heaven. We do not take our cues from culture, but from our king. We do not take our cues from the Constitution of the United States, but from the word of God. Everything that we think and believe is to be oriented toward and framed by this heavenly citizenship. The Philippians were so proud to be a colony of Rome. They, they looked like a little Rome. They dressed like Romans and they called Caesar, Savior, and Lord. They were wrapped up in their earthly citizenship. And so Paul, knowing that, reminds them they are subjects of the heavenly Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that their true commonwealth exists not in Philippi, but in Rome. 
That means our mission in this world is not acceptance, but attending to the word and the mission and the pattern of our king. We want to serve Jesus. We want to exalt Jesus. We want to love Jesus. We want to magnify Jesus. We want to see people bow the knee of their heart to Jesus. And where the values of our earthly citizenship run counter to our heavenly citizenship, we ought to choose Jesus Christ and faithfulness to his word over anything else every time because only Jesus conquered the grave and only Jesus is coming again. Nothing else is coming again to save you. Nothing else that you value is coming again to vindicate you. Nothing else that you're living for is going to give you a, make a dime's worth of difference in your life on the day of Christ Jesus. There's one Savior who can make the difference. And if you're living, and I'm sure to some extent all of us, including myself, are living for something less than Jesus, and to the extent that the Spirit is awakening that within you this morning, before we come to the table and partake of the supper, deal with it and ask, ask God to, to make my mission Jesus. I'm here to tell you, there are times in life when all we have is Jesus, Ultimately, that's true anyway when he returns. But there's times in life right now when, when prizing and pursuing Jesus will make you feel very alone. There's times that it will make you feel rejected and abandoned and without hope of salvation. It, it, it will mean losing everything sometimes other than the one you can't live without. Paul knew a lot about this, did he not? He's there in prison, but, but Jesus is there, and, and He's with us by the Spirit, and there's joy, but there's also pressure. There's pressure in the life of the Christian to disengage rather than to be disciplined in our discipleship. There's pressure to forsake purity in order to have friends and popularity. There's pressure to take a break rather than to beg Christ to break me afresh from my brothers and sisters in Christ there's pressure to cave on obedience to Jesus, to stay employed rather than to serve Him no matter what it costs. But we don't face these pressures without hope. We await the Savior. Where is He coming from? From the heaven of which we already have a citizenship. Do you believe that we have an out-of-this-world Savior who is coming again? Do you believe that He's coming, and because He's coming, even though it's hard, that we can live out our heavenly citizenship in the face of opposition with the sure hope that our pursuit of Christ will end up very well for those who love and follow Jesus? It's going to be better than you think, and it's going to be infinitely better than you deserve. That's what Paul is living for. That's how he's in prison for the gospel and still joyful in adversity and able to point to himself as an example because he's got a savior on the way. You got a savior on the way, church. When I asked Stacy to marry me in July of 1999, she said yes. Can you believe that? I Yeah, amen, brother. Uh, true story, uh, Stacy had eye surgery uh, since we came here eight years ago. I think she had eye, eye surgery, I guess, five or six years ago now, babe-ish. So let's say six years ago. Well, until she had that eye surgery, she, she actually had 
lenses implanted into her eyeballs. Um, but before that, she was blinder than a bat. Like, like so legally blind, you can't even imagine. Um, she literally has microscopes for eyeballs. Like she could put her eye on the Bible and like see the pixel. That's, that's how her eye works. But if she looked in this room without the surgery that she had had, she had to have Coke bottle glasses. And I mean Coke bottle glasses. And I remember I was dating her in college and somebody said, how did you land her? And I said, well, she couldn't see what she was getting. True story. <laughs> that year of engagement to Stacy, I could not wait for July 22nd, 2000. How much more, church, ought we eagerly anticipate the coming of our bridegroom, where we will be wed with him where we will be saved, we will be conformed to Him perfectly. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming and we anxiously await for Him, Paul says. When when He returns, He's going to take these lowly bodies that get anxious and tired and weak, these bodies that have failed Him so many times, these bodies that struggle to stay in step with the Savior, these bodies that are subject to death, and He will, Paul tells us, transform them to be like His glorious resurrection body. And all this is possible because of what happened back in Philippians 2. Though He's in the form of God, He came in the likeness of men to take our place so that we could be transformed. Jesus became like us so that He could make us like Him. The world is glorying in their bellies and that is all the glory they're ever going to get. The glory of a great name, a great meal, a great night, but their bodies will die and be raised to destruction, but those who pursue Christ will share in His glory, a glory beyond compare. And this is possible, why? Hang with me for just a minute. Because Jesus is God. Because by the same power that God has, He will subject all things to Himself. He has complete divine power. The God who came down in humility to become like us will soon come with all power. He came in humility to go to the cross, but when He comes back, you will not be able to deny His power. He will subject all things to Himself, and He will transform our bodies and make us like Him. In other words, when King Jesus returns and gloriously raises and changes our bodies, there will nothing There will be nothing left to oppose us and our pursuit of Christ anymore. No more battles with sin, no more satanic attacks, no more tears, no more dying, no more temptations. All things subject to the Lord and those who trust in Him and pursue Him. How? How are you going to get there? Follow the pattern. Deny self. Don't boast in your flesh. Look to your Savior. He's coming soon. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity 
to participate in the death of Christ. We thank you that his death atones for our sin. And as our deacons are preparing to to serve the supper, God, we give you praise. That it is a, a foretaste of the victory that is on the way. That as we partake of the supper, we are proclaiming your death until you come. That we are proclaiming that our, our hope of life everlasting is not in what we've done, but in who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And God, we all fall short of living for Jesus and the good of his church. God, I pray you would help us. God, that you would help us as we enter this time of celebrating who you are and what you've done, that you would help us to do so in a way that we're honest with ourselves and clear before you and spirit of God you would do whatever you need to do in this moment to make us united make us one under the lordship of Christ we ask it in Jesus name amen thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast you can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store just search for North Roanoke we hope to meet you soon